Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Susan Sarandon. Oh my God, we truly have been blessed by a sponsorship from the one and only star of stage and screen, Susan Sarandon. Right? We're, our star is just ascending. I know. How could we be so lucky? <laughs> Welcome to That Spooky, everyone. I'm Johnny. I'm Tyler. And we're a weekly podcast that basically takes a whole bunch of really scary stuff and makes it really gay so that you don't have to be so freaked out by it. Yeah, very that. Yeah, it's a pretty simple equation we got going on here, and we're glad that you're back on episode five. Yes. Hey, welcome back. Um, so before we get too deep into the episode today, I did want to make a second or further observation about my story last week. Oh, corrections. Hey. Yeah, yeah a bit of a bit of a corrections. Tyler's moment. got an oopsie poopsie. Well, it's not my oopsie poopsie. It's more of a oopsie poopsie. 
Scoops. You have the original story of the Bunny Man. Okay. Right? Okay, so you remember in 1904 there was a bus? Yeah. That crashed? Yeah, but that whole part wasn't real. Don't trick me again. I know it wasn't real, but then I was thinking like, whoa, yeah, it really wasn't real because did they even have buses in 1904? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, you're really right. That's some double trickery right there. Yeah, I think at best they had wagons or like steam vehicles, but no buses. (laughs) Totally. It always comes back to a wagon with you. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, you just like (laughs) you just like manifest wagons. Yeah, totally. So anyway, I just wanted to make that further observation uh, towards the bullshittery of the Bunny Man legend. (laughs) That's cool. Well, I mean, I guess if I need to like make a correction, if anything, I should probably just point out that uh, if you were not aware, B. Arthur was never really in prison at any point nor was she ever a prison informant nor is she in any way associated (laughs) with the son of sam cult so that's one for you (laughs) it's good good to state that clarification you don't want the b arthur estate coming down on you sure if the nuance of my shitty knockoff 90s gen xer humor is not enough (laughs) for you like if you just don't quite get that cool there you go buddy (laughs) Okay, well, now that we're done hammering ourselves into the ground with corrections, I want to move on to something that has been making us very happy. Very happy. Yeah, it's this story that's coming out of the UK right now. It stars uh, a lady named Amethyst Realm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Amethyst actually has some really great news. Um, so basically, in 2005, Amethyst uh, cheated on her uh, partner, Um, with a ghost and that kind of kicked off uh i think it was like 20 uh relationships that she's had with ghosts since 2005 right tyler yeah 20 yeah and she's 20 ghost dicks 20 ghost dicks to manage oh yeah and so like she's met all these guys she's been playing the field you know just trying to find mr right and she's finally landed on the one ray ray is his name and she met him in australia while hiking in the bush on a business trip she met ray she knew they were soulmates but she was also understanding that she couldn't stay there she was just on a business trip oh yeah totally because she was on a hike in like the bush at the time and she sees this guy like they lock eyes but her whole thing is she's like no i've been down this road before ghosts are static beings yeah so he's gonna be locked to this area and i'm just gonna go on my merry way until she's on the plane ride home and who does she run into rom-con style Ray. ray so She is, like, so stoked about this. She reports. She's like, well, we had to celebrate somehow. They go into the bathroom. (laughs) And in her words, she's now a member of the Mile High Club. Ooh, damn, Yeah, and she totally says that with, like, a little, like, (laughs) hair flip and, like, nod. Like, yep. Oh, yeah, she's cheeky. Oh, man, she's all about it. And she is, like, loving the press. Like, she's been in People magazine. She's been in, like, a whole bunch of different news outlets. So just let it be known that we're not just, like, making fun of somebody that we, like, found on Facebook here. So anyway, Amethyst uh, meets this guy. Everything's going really well. They've been in, like, an LTR for, like, nine months now or something like that. Yeah. All of a sudden, they are on, um, like, another hiking trip, which is super cute because that's, like, the way that they met, you know, like, really thoughtful. Yeah, Um, and they were on a hiking trip. I think the place was called... Wookie Hole. Oh, yeah. They were hiking down at the Wookie Hole. Yeah, they were hiking down at the Wookie 
hole in the UK. And he was like, yo, baby, we need to hang back. This was like the first time she had ever heard his voice, she reported. And according to her, it's like low and sexy. So just imagine Robert the doll. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And anyway, Ray is just like, hey, baby, uh, we do... Uh, I've really been enjoying this time spent with you. And basically, he didn't drop down on a knee because according to her, he doesn't have a knee. So he proposes. And she said yes. Mm, Yay. Love is love. Love is beautiful. Love a wedding. Oh, we love a wedding. Love I'm, a blushing bride. I love a blushing bride. I love a transparent groom. Yeah. I'm all about love, no matter what dimension you're in, baby. I mean, I would love to see, like, who shows up for his side of the family, you know what I mean? Yeah, that would be pretty good. Like, you could probably do a destination wedding without too many people complaining about it. Yep. That'd be cool. <laughs> so, anyway, she went on ITV and did this adorable interview with Philip Schofield on like their Halloween episode and he's fully just asking him like hey you must be really stoked about this whole thing Amethyst is answering for Ray it's a really adorable interview the couple seems so happy (laughs) we are so happy for them Mm -hmm. and we will definitely be keeping y'all updated on the wedding plans and the family planning because Amethyst is ready to have a ghost baby. Yeah, phantom baby baby. Well, and this is the thing. She actually informed people in one of these ITV interviews the thing about ghost babies, and I didn't even know this, a lot of the time they don't come to term because the carriers don't believe. Yeah. So all the best to Amethyst. Uh, According to her, the ghost sex is great, and every time she orgasms, so, Mm -hmm. like, man, you're having a good time. We're happy you're having a good time and no one's getting hurt. Rock the fuck on. She's getting hers. Yep. Yeah, man. You get yours. <laughs> you go, girl. Yeah, girl. The wedding's supposed to be next summer. We can't wait. Maybe there will be an invitation coming to our <gasps> yeah. mailbox at some point. Yes, I am so down for a ghost wedding. We could go as a thruple with Zoltan. It would be yeah. so cute. I'm just imagining the pictures. Yeah. So I guess with that said, we should get into our stories for the day. Oh, yeah. The reason we're here. Yeah. All right, girl. Well, you're going first this week. Yep, I am. And I am bringing something fresh to the table. Thank God, because (laughs) I just feel like the shit I have been throwing out has been so boring. (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. I just mean it's different. It's a topic we haven't talked about yet. (laughs) Well, thank you for bringing something fresh to this utterly tragic little show. You're welcome. So what I'm going to be talking about today happened about 50 years ago, and it is considered to be one of the most highly documented UFO encounters in history. Oh, fuck. We're going to space. We're going to space. Or, in fact, space is coming to us. No, I don't like that. (laughs) No, I don't like that one bit. Okay. So, this happened 50 years ago-ish, 1967. It happened in Canada, in Manitoba, and it happened to a man named Stephen Michalak. Michalak had moved with his family from Poland to Canada after serving as a military policeman in World War II, so that landed him in Winnipeg, Manitoba. 
Okay, sounds like a party. The Las Vegas of Canada. Yeah, totally. It's a destination for many. But this is where Michalak was living, Winnipeg, and he worked there as an industrial mechanic at a cement plant. So this is significant because we need to keep in mind, as the story goes on, that this career gave him an extensive knowledge of automotive machinery, welding, and metalworks. Okay, he's a smart guy. Yeah, he's a smart cookie. Yeah. Okay, Miss Vanty. <laughs> That's okay. great. Speaking as a gay man with a podcast, I'm actually very uh, surprised that we've made it to episode five without making a Miss Vanty reference. It's so, true. Well, yeah. There you go. We've met that quota. Yeah, and we didn't even like do the impression of her walking backwards. We just made a cookies thing. So yeah. I, like, yeah, I mean, we're there. Yeah, we're there. We're, we're part of gay culture. <laughs> so outside of his day job as a industrial mechanic, Stefan had a passion for geology. So he fancied himself an amateur geologist. Oh, so he was real exciting. Yeah, he was a real exciting cookie. So in his spare time, he spent much of it prospecting. And prospecting is basically when you go digging around for minerals and and gold and silver and shit. I'm into it. And there was this place that he liked to go often, um, and it's called Falcon Lake, Manitoba. Um, so this area of Manitoba, Falcon Lake, is relatively unpopulated, so it was also known to have a high mineral deposit. Oh, okay, so it's kind of like perfect for him as an amateur geologist. Yeah, lots of stuff for him to dig around, chip away at. Yeah, like a lot of lone time spent, you know, hanging out with the rocks. Yeah, I'm exactly. into it. I wanted totally. to be a geologist when I was a kid. Yeah, you had a rock tumbler. I totally had a rock tumbler, and a pretty big collection and it all was going fine until I had a friend whose father was a geologist uh-huh. and he invited me into like his shed which was also like his lab no and this is fine it's not okay. a weird story Don't, I, <laughs> okay. your face dropped um, but he was like yeah you know I'll show you my stuff me a little gay boy imagined to walk into this shed and see like the blue hope diamond and yeah. like you know turquoise and amethyst and, <laughs> and sapphire and emeralds and like it would just be beautiful glinting and yeah. shining and glamour. But that's gemology. That's crystals. Oh. That's not geology, which he did, which was a lot of sediment. Right. Yeah, so I learned very quickly that I did not <laughs> want to be a geologist. You wanted to be a gemologist. I didn't even really want to be a gemologist because I hate science. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Poo-poo to science. No, I just get that. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just hated the classes as a kid and I'm and I had no follow through. <laughs> what science? <laughs> What's fucking that? I've never heard of science. <laughs> I completely lost track where I am. So allow me to return to Earth and uh, return to this story. Falcon Lake. It's a fun place to <laughs> gather rocks. Yes. So on May 19th, 1967. One day before the incident, Michalak hopped into his car and decided he was going to go do some prospecting for the May long weekends. The May 2-4, Victoria Day weekend, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever. Crack a few beers, find a few sediment drifts, whatever. Yeah. Do your thing, mama. In my hometown, we called Victoria Day hiking day, which apparently nobody else in the world ever did. (laughs) So I was like, what are you guys doing for hiking day when I left, like, my little small town? Everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? What's hiking day? (laughs) It was just a day we'd go out and walk in the woods. My God, and you called, like, Christmas tree day. Yeah, totally. Um, He traveled from his home in Winnipeg to Falcon Lake, where he spent the night in a hotel on the Trans-Canada Highway. Okay, just having some me time. Yeah, 
Exactly. Love it. Having some me time, getting there early to sleep because you need it to be up early the next day. He's got his candles. He's got his crystals. <laughs> yeah. He's ready to find more. Yeah, he's ready to find more. So on the next morning, on May 20th, the day of the incident, um, Stephen left his hotel around 5.30 a.m., so very early, and then he headed north into the wilderness. I already don't like the sound of this. That's too damn early. Right? By 9 o'clock, he found a quartz vein in a marshy area close to a small stream, and he decided that this would be a perfect place to prospect. Yeah, he's like, yes! <laughs> totally jackpot! Woo! <laughs> Thank God I woke up so fucking horribly early for I'm, this. I'm glad I got here before everybody else. First one here, motherfuckers! <laughs> Flag planted. Yeah, exactly. So he prospected it until about 11 a.m. when he paused briefly for lunch, and then he went back to observe the quartz formation and continued to work. So at around 12.15 p.m., though, so just slightly afternoon, he is suddenly startled because there is a flock of geese that just burst past him from the stream, flying and screaming into the sky. Completely valid. Yeah. Not something you would usually see in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and geese mean fucking business. Yeah. And especially then, in a flock. Yeah, that would be so loud. So Ooh. it definitely spooked him. So he gazed up at the flock as they flew away. And when he did so, he happened to catch something else in the corner of his eye. No. In the sky... Descending, he saw what he described as two cigar-shaped objects with domes on top. Wait, 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 wait. Are cigars horizontal with, like, a dome on top of the horizontal, like, the long, flat part, or, like, domes at either end? Domes on the middle part, like a inside-out, like if a donut had an Audi instead of an Indy. Oh, like a nipple. Yeah. Okay, I was imagining, like, a dong, like, you know, like, rounded at either end and cigar <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, no, no. So one on the top, basically like a cartoon spaceship, what you would imagine as being, like, retro-futuristic spaceship. Still fucking scary. Yeah, he watched these objects. And they continued to go lower and lower and actually come closer and closer to where he was. Mm. And then he noticed that they weren't so much long cigar shapes as they were oval shapes. Steven, you in danger, girl. Yeah, exactly. So he continued to watch until one of the discs finally landed on a flat rock approximately 150 feet from where he was standing. Oh, and what happened to the other one? The other one just kind of flew off back into the clouds. <laughs> oh, so it's like, fuck this geologist. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm going home. Boring. We're going where the party is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to the pyramids. We're going to Mykonos, bitches. Yeah, baby. <laughs> this is how you probe in Mykonos, bitch. <laughs> so here we are in the wilderness. Stephen Michalak is standing there, huddled behind a rock, staring at this mysterious object that had just landed 150 feet away from him. Ooh. So... What do you do in this situation? Run the fuck away. No, you sit there for a half an hour and you sketch what you see. No, you fucking don't. <laughs> well, that is what Stephen Michalak did. There is actually a <laughs> picture of the drawing that he made, which I will post on social media so everybody can check it out there. Thank God we all have cameras in our pockets these days because you don't have to sit around for 30 fucking minutes <laughs> drawing the thing that might kill you. <laughs> it's true. You can um, Facebook Live it instead. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, of course, actually. That's how people die because they spend 30 minutes live streaming it instead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, how far we've come. But this drawing is actually pretty interesting to look at because it is very much that like typical 
UFO shape. Wow, and it's pretty detailed, too. Like, he's got grates on there. Oh, yeah, and, like, size estimations. Like, he kind of went in on this. Yeah, he went in on it. And again, I guess his background as an industrial mechanic kind of helped him sort of estimate the size of this object. Totally. You know, he has some levity there as far as credibility is concerned. So while kind of tucked away behind this rock, uh, Mitchellak also remembers feeling warm waves kind of radiating towards him. And there was also in the air a strong smell of sulfur. Oh, so it was hot and shitty. Yeah, it was really hot and shitty. Hot, <laughs> shitty, and terrifying. That is a fucking horrible mix. Yeah, exactly. Also, he heard the whirling of what sounded like fast electric motors and a constant hissing of air being taken in or expelled. Ooh, just so, hot, shitty air being moved around. <laughs> exactly. His senses were just ignited with a lot of nope. The hills are alive with a sound of nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> exactly. So eventually a door opened on the side of the object and Michalak observed a pool of light just sort of emit from this door. Motherfucker rhyme. Right? No, he goes closer. Oh. He's like, I'm going to check this out. So he gets about 60 feet away from the object. And at that point, Michalak hears distinctively two human-like voices speaking to each other. One high-pitched, one low-pitched. Do you hear those voices? Those are the voices of the things that are about to kill you, so run. <laughs> right? He does not run. He actually engages. So Michalak said that at this point, he actually thought that this object was an experimental American test vehicle. So he yelled out to them, calling them Yankee boys. <laughs> and Hey, Yankee boys, need any help? He's just like, yeah, those hot, shitty Americans just driving their nipple planes up here. Yeah, exactly. Fucking around in the wilderness. <laughs> so he calls out to them. Obviously, there's no response. He then calls out to them in all the languages that he knows, which are Polish, German, and Russian. And still gets no response. Shit. Yet. Um, he also doesn't see anything. So at this point, he decides to get closer. And he gets so close that he can actually look inside of the doorway that had opened. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Problem was, it was way too bright. He couldn't see anything. So being the prepared girl that he is, he actually had a pair of welder's goggles with him. Because he would wear them as eye protection when he's chipping away at the minerals and shit. Yeah, and now he's going to be able to see the face of whatever's going to kill him. Totally. Or probe him. Yeah, exactly. So he puts the visor on, and then he's able to see a little bit of what's going on inside this object. He sees panels with different color flashing lights, and he sees these beams of light cutting through the air, kind of like security lasers. Oh, shit, like a Catherine Zeta-Jones entrapment laser yeah. thing. Oh, that's hot. Exactly. Right. So he he does go in. He does step back out. And when he steps back out, three panels actually closed in front of him over this opening, kind of like a camera shutter. So just like zoop. Just like Star Trek style. Very, very that. He's still standing by the object, so he starts to observe the exterior. He noticed there's no distinctive or really any markings on the object to maybe signify what it is or where it came from. And he also noticed that the metal was a really bizarre like glass-like metal 
and it had no seams, no creases, no indication of it having been like welded together, which again, he would kind of have an idea how that stuff would work. Do you think it was made by Apple? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. They, the aliens brought that from the future. Yeah, it was the first iPad. Cool, yeah, we are starting to piece this together. It's the iShip. Yeah, so Mitchellack is observing the exterior, and at one point, he reaches out to touch the object, mm-hmm. and when he does, his glove catches on fire. Oh, shit. Yeah, it catches on fire, and it melts into his finger, and it burns him real bad. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, so just after he burns his hand, the object then starts to rotate in a counterclockwise motion, exposing a grate. Oh, like the one that was in the picture. Yes, exactly. So it's this little grate with small circular holes. It passes in front of him, and then he is suddenly hit with this hot blast of gas that sends him flying backwards. Ooh. Yeah, this hot blast of gas actually set his shirt on fire, his overshirt and his undershirt. Shit. But he was able to get them off, so he didn't, like, catch on fire. But he smells like hot, shitty air. (laughs) But he smells like hot, shitty air. Which really sucks. Yeah, it was not a good day at this point. No. And I don't even think he found any silver. That is a real shit day. I'm feeling really bad for our friend Steven. Right? So he's knocked back by this blast. He throws the clothes that are on fire off of him, and he's able to look up into the sky just in time to see this object disappear into the clouds. Ooh, well, at least it's gone. But now he's badly burnt and alone in the wilderness. Not a good scene. Not a good scene. To make matters worse, he's hit with a sudden nauseous feeling and he starts to throw up he's very dizzy very disoriented oh wow so he's just a complete mess he's a complete mess he has the wits about him to know that he needs to get back to the motel so he does and from there he then hops on a bus and within nine hours he's able to get back to winnipeg smells like shit covered in puke burnt off clothes haggard from the woods hopping on a bus i feel bad for everybody sitting near him (laughs) Totally. I'm glad you survived, but my God, I hope that you were able to get a single roadie yourself. I was going to say, maybe he showered first, but he has these, like, hot burns on his chest. So probably not. Uh, yeah, no. Hopefully he was at least able to get a shirt. You know what I mean? Fingies crossed. So after nine hours, Michalak arrives in Winnipeg, and when he arrives in Winnipeg, he's basically admitted into the hospital right away. He is treated for his chest and his stomach burns, but he still continues to feel sick for several days after, and he experiences things like diarrhea and weight loss. And you know how I said at the beginning that this is one of the most highly documented encounters? Yeah. Well, there's actually a picture of him in the hospital with his shirt open where you can see the burns on his chest. Holy shit. Yeah. And they look exactly like the great in the photo. I'm, well, yeah, Tyler's showing it to me right now. This is insane. Yeah. So exactly like the great in the photo. Or like in the in the drawing that he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Whoa, yeah. that poor little guy. <laughs> right? Not good. Oh, you poor little nerd. You went out to go find rocks in the woods and you got fucked up by aliens. Yeah, you just got like oh. mared by an alien spacecraft. Oh, I just want to hug him. Right? But the burns are probably hurt, so don't hug him. And he smells like shit. (laughs) He smells like shit. Actually, one of the um, documented accounts from his son, Stan Michalak, said that when he went to visit his father in the hospital, he was nine at the time, he was struck by this, like, overwhelming smell of sulfur. Like, poor Stephen Michalak was just, like, reeking of sulfur days 
later. So then he like really wants people to come in and visit him in the hospital. And he's like, I don't know why they won't come after right? one visit. And it's like, they get the shit smell. And they're like, look, he'll be out in a few days. He'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. It's not life threatening. See you later. Look, Steven's saying that he got fucked up by aliens here. So we'll see him in a few days. He'll stop smelling like hot shit. It'll be good. Yeah, exactly. So while he's in the hot shit hospital, psychiatrists examined him and they reported that although he was dazed and confused, Stephen was very rational. And the Michelax physician indicated that the signs of hair loss around the burns and the race patterns were symptoms very similar to first degree burn. So that ain't no joke. Yeah, no, he got fucked up by that UFO. Yep. So eventually he's let out of the hospital, but for the next several months, health problems would continue to plague Michelac. So he continues to experience things like a loss of appetite, further weight loss, swelling, bizarre fainting spells. Um, And for a while, he would even be treated at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Oh, iconic. Yeah, so a lot of people are trying to help get this guy turned around. So, of course, fairly early on, the media was paying a lot of attention to this story and were reporting on it, and that then got the attention of the RCMP. And if you don't know who the RCMP are, they are the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mounted? Mounted. Mounted. Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Police. Mm-hmm. RCMP. So in June 1967, the RCMP had taken an interest in Michelak's claims and started to investigate the incident. Um, later in June, around June 26, just over a month after the incident, the RCMP were actually able to find the site where the encounter happened. And they were able to recover some of his personal items. Oh, shit. Yeah, including the burnt glove. Fuck. Yeah, Um, there's a picture of that, too. We'll put that on social media. Oh, shit. Yeah, that really is a burnt glove. So the RCMP collected soil samples from the location. That soil was tested for radioactivity, but the tests came back negative. A month later, on July 28, 1967, Michelak actually joins the RCMP again in going to the site, and then they actually find a circle burned into the rock where the ship had landed. And they knew it was burned into the rock because where there was moss on the rock, it was just, like, mysteriously not there. Like, very crop circle. Oh, shit. Yeah. They take another soil sample from this circle. That soil comes back as radioactive. It's actually so high in radioactivity, it has to be, like, super carefully disposed of, which I don't know how they do that. Yeah, I mean, launch it into space, I guess. I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah, you can have your radiation back, aliens. Here oh, you no, go. Oh, no, but this is pre-1969, because that's when, remember? <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah, Yeah, you're a little right. bit of history knowledge coming back to bite oh, you. Oh, my God, then they probably just, like, threw it in the green been. <laughs> yeah, then, but they're like, you know what, let's chop this up and put it in some kids' toys. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think we can make green paint from this. <laughs> so lots of other Canadian authorities helped investigate this case. The RCMP were involved, of course. The National Defense, or the Department of National Defense were involved. The Royal Canadian Air Force were involved. And the Manitoba Department of Health and wellness were also involved. Wow, they shook us with those aliens. (laughs) Yeah, so there are a lot of people looking into this and trying to figure out 
what would go on. There have been some documents and reports that have been made public and released, and one document in particular provides a full summary of the case and the investigation. You know what? I just think it's so admirable because the Canadian government can't get their shit together <laughs> to look up missing and murdered Indigenous women hey. throughout the years, but we can totally put all of our national defenses into finding out what's going on with these aliens. Yeah. Totally. Woo! Good point. Thank God. So this summary essentially states that the agencies involved in the investigation were unable to find any evidence whatsoever to dispute Mitchell Axe's story. So they couldn't disprove the things that he was saying. Well, shit, yeah, you can't disprove those burns on his chest either. Exactly. The doctors and the physicians were also unable to attain any information through examination and interview that would indicate what could have accounted for the extreme burns on his bodies. That is fucked up. There is also no way to explain how his personal items, like the glove, were burned. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation. And 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it. The glamour of the Roaring Twenties, wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. There is no evidence of any kind of a flame. There's nothing that was obvious that could have caused this to happen. A total mystery. Again, the radioactivity was pretty high in the soil, and there was another patch of radioactivity found that was, again, completely unexplainable. Holy shit. So those aliens really fucked up Falcon Lake. Yeah. Um, this wasn't in this report. This was actually found like a year later in 1968, but there was actually these radioactive pieces of metal that were found embedded in nearby rocks in that area as well. Yeah, so a lot of weird, unexplained things so some people would claim or accuse Stephen Michalak of making up this story, but he never really seeked fame from this. He never really did interviews or, or any kind of thing to try and profit off of this encounter. In fact, he had stated to family and friends many times that he wished he hadn't have told anybody about oh. this because it just became such a burden in his life and he just couldn't shake it because everybody was asking and everybody was speculating, you know, and he just kind of wanted to be left alone. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, understandably, too. I mean, if this really happened, it probably really rattled. 
rattled him, and shit, that's insane. Yep, exactly. Michalak did live to be, like, 83 years old, and he died in 1999. And all those years, again, the details of his story remained the same. Like, he never wavered from that one story. And he never really admitted that it was aliens or that he thought it was aliens. He was just like, I don't know what it was. It could have been a military test object. It could have been aliens. He just was kind of like... At that point, I don't know what I experienced, but I experienced it. You know what I mean? I bet he'll never go to Falcon Lake ever again. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if he ever really did. I don't know if he continued on with his um, pursuits in geology or not. But that, in essence, is the story of the Falcon Lake incident. Cool story. Whoa. Yeah, thanks. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, totally. And again, it's, this, this case was actually compared to Roswell, and some people think that this is a more important case in proving that aliens exist because there was actually like recognition from the government being like, oh, something weird happened here, and we don't know what it was, instead of just trying to ignore it or explain it away. Totally, and like photographic evidence of the aftermath, too, like tangible kind of stuff. Yeah, those birds are ridiculous. Yeah, those are fucking <laughs> real, man. It's crazy. Ooh, well, good on you, bitch. You brought a good alien story to us this week. Yeah, some UFOs, honey. We had to go there. Yeah, we finally broke that wall down. Yep. So, Johnny. Yeah? Your turn. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought this week I would try to task myself with finding a story where no one died. Okay, Good task. Totally. So this is just going to be some easy, breezy, light storytelling to wrap us up today. Oh, it's going to be some lighthearted magic. Completely. So today we're going to be talking about the exorcism of Roland Doe. Exorcism. What is light about an exorcism? He levitated. Well, that's pretty light. Yeah, light as a feather, baby. (laughs) Physically light, not emotionally light. Yeah, well, okay. We're going to go all the way back to 1949 here. Okay. We're in Cottage City, Maryland, so we're in the USA. Uh, Roland Doe, it's a pseudonym. In some versions of the story, he's referred to as Richard, and some he's referred to as Robbie. Today, he's Roland. Okay. Roland is like a 13-year-old boy, which, you know, is just a great age. Some people say that he's a very ordinary boy, comes from this, like, really super close-knit family. Okay. Didn't really have a lot of kid friends, mostly stuck around with adults. Did he smell? Is that why he didn't have friends? Yeah, well, I I think every little boy smells at 13, so (laughs) let's just accept the fact that he probably smelled like garbage. Okay. And he didn't really like other kids, so he hung around his aunt Tilly a lot. Okay, loving it. Yeah, and if you ever go out and research this more, sometimes Tilly is referred to as Millie, sometimes she's referred to as Harriet. Okay, but why all the alternative names? I don't no, I, I guess it's just the fact that, you know, certain documentaries, certain books say certain things. I, I don't know. It's just kind of all over the map. But we're just protecting identities left, right, and center. Oh, okay, like protection, identity protection. Yeah, that's kind of the whole deal here. So Roland is really tight with Aunt Tilly. She comes over and visits in early January 1949. She brings him a gift. The gift is a Ouija board. Oh, fuck. No. Yeah, Yeah, just this is how all great stories begin. So she shows him how to use the Ouija board. They reportedly spend the entire day just, like, trying to contact the dead, having a real good time. So Aunt Tilly is, like, that wild wacky aunt that comes over every now and then that's just like hey i brought you a monkey paw oh my god yeah she probably had like 
one little eyeglass, like one monocle that like dangled from her like brass brooch on her frilly like fucking shirt. You know what I mean? Totally. She wore a bustle. Yeah. She had a huge hat like she was going to the derby yeah. and a little monocle. Yeah. Her hair was always in a crazy Victorian updo and she was really into spiritualism according to people. Okay. Yeah, the spiritualism part's true. Everything else is just how I like to imagine crazy Aunt Tilly. <laughs> totally. Anyway, so basically they're contacting the dead. Ooh la la, everything's great. Tilly fucks off back to her own house, leaving Roland and his family... <laughs> You know how these stories end. They well, use the Ouija board. Nothing really happens. Everyone walks away, and then suddenly, whoever shit, shit happens. Exactly. Suddenly, shit happens. Well, this is the thing. So, January fifteenth, nineteen forty nine. Uh, the dates are quite exact because the mother starts keeping a journal of all of this stuff. Okay. Uh, the family starts to hear a steady dripping sound throughout the house at night. Weird. Yeah, and they can't locate the source of the dripping. There are no leaky faucets, nothing like that. But this continues for like seven or eight nights. Okay. Yeah. Which kind of freaks me out because that happens all the time in our house. Drip noises. Yeah, but ultimately what it usually is is like water dripping off of like a plate or like a pan that we've left to soak overnight or something like that. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, but I mean, hey, maybe we're haunted. So January 18th, shit starts to really ramp up. Uh, we've gotten leaky sounds. Now we're hearing scratching sounds emanating from the walls. Ooh, that's not cute. Yeah, thanks for bringing that Ouija board on, Tilly. <laughs> yeah. Love no, it. Nothing ever good comes from inside a wall. Yeah, nothing ever good comes from a gift that you get from your eccentric aunt with the monocle. Yeah. So, January 26th, the family gets news that Tilly has suddenly died. <gasps> oh. It's completely unexpected to them because basically she had multiple sclerosis and kind of kept it under wraps. Okay. So, roll Roland is, like, devastated by this whole thing. It's, like, his first instance of really losing someone. He's 13. Right, and he was really close with Tilly. Yeah, I mean, kids are fucking weak. They can't take a death. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Some of us grew up with death. Thank you very much. Okay, so if it isn't enough that you're already going through weird shit in your home, you unexpectedly lose a loved one, now the weird shit starts ramping up. Right. So they start to hear, like, thumps and tapping upstairs at night. It, like, really starts to get louder. Okay. The family is like, well, maybe it's mice. They Mm. bring in an exterminator, finds nothing. Of course. Family starts to wonder about the possibility of the paranormal. Fair. Yeah, well, this is the thing. So I mean, you know, there was a Ouija board fuckery happening not long before all this shit started to happen. Well, this is the thing. So the family is a little bit nervous that maybe they've invited a poltergeist into the home. The mother, Mama Doe, uh, thinks that it may be Tilly trying to communicate from beyond the grave. Okay. I think that's bullshit because the sound started before Tilly died. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Unless it's drip, drip. It's a, yeah, exactly. So unless it's like a forerunner or some bullshit like that. Like, it ain't Tilly, mama. Like, this one night, like, this uh, holy picture she has on the wall is, like, rattling. So the mother calls back out to this, like, entity. Yeah. And she's like, if you're Tilly, knock three times. She hears three knocks on the wall. Okay. So then she's like, okay, if you're Tilly, knock four times. Four knocks and then scratches appear on Roland's bed. That ain't Tilly. Yeah, that ain't fucking <laughs> Tilly. Let me tell you about that. Unless Tilly also had really long nails. Yeah, exactly. It couldn't have been Tilly because, as we all know, she had square tipped acrylics. Right. Yeah, no scratching there. No, man, no. So here's the deal um, all of this shit's happening. Family thinks they're being haunted. They wish. Allegedly, mm-hmm. objects start being, like, thrown around, flying across rooms. Uh, there are, like, unexplained sounds 
as we said before, the mother is reporting seeing a vase like levitate around Roland. So things start to take this weird turn where they start to be centered around Roland. Right. Yeah. Specific. Well, and then one night his bed starts shaking and freaking out as if it has like a life of his own. Okay. The parents run to his room and he's like screaming and all this kind of shit. So they finally like settle him down, get him out of the bed. It you know, calms itself down. The next morning they take him to a doctor. Right. And basically the doctor can't find anything wrong with Roland and is like, well, he's probably just high strung. <laughs> I know. What a diagnosis. Right? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and that's some good old doctor bullshit. Right. We're talking like 1947. They probably had like five diagnoses for anything and everything. Totally. That's the thing. And at least three of them involve being chained down to some bed in an institution. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. People were fucking terrible. So yeah. here's the thing. The doctor's can't really do anything for Roland. Uh, the family is basically just like, well, I guess science isn't really doing anything for us. So they turn to religion. Sure. Uh, they're German Lutherans. So they go to their pastor, uh, Luther Miles Schultz. Um, Luther the Lutheran? Yeah, baby. Ooh. So anyway, Schultz on February 17th, 1949, gets Roland to stay the night at his house. Okay. Now, Schultz is a believer in parapsychology, which is like telekinesis and stuff like that. So he's like pretty interested in this whole case. Oh, like Drew Barrymore, Firestarter oh, kind of shit. Exactly. And Roland kind of is the Firestarter in this <laughs> moment. So Schultz has Roland over to his house to spend a night so that he can observe him. Uh, Roland arrives at 9.20 p.m., leaves the next morning 9.20 a.m. So he's there for a solid 12 hours. Okay. In that time, Schultz observes uh, like household objects flying through the air furniture moving on its own accord he hears scratching sounds on the walls blankets flying everywhere like it's just fucking nuts right so schultz comes back and he's like there's definitely something going on here yeah there's the mother holy water she starts blessing the house the bottle of holy water reportedly like lifts up when she puts it down Shit. and like goes flying across the room like the bottle just goes whizzing past her head oh my god yeah so like february 26 1949 a month after tilly's death mm-hmm the family tries to contact Tilly through the Ouija board. Why? Yeah, because they love the spooky dookie shit as well. Oh, my God. Yeah. The spooky dookie shit. That's the fucking shit that probably started the shit in the first place. I know, right? Because the Ouija board worked out so well for you the first time. So yeah. it's like, why not go back? This is why you need to fucking finish high school, people. So the whole family kind of expected communication from Tilly beyond the grave. And they got communication, wasn't quite on the Ouija board. Scratches started showing up on Roland's body. Oh, like shit. Deep welts on his legs. Supposedly, during this whole process, like the words Christ and hell are like Ooh. etched into his chest. Yeah. And like the scratches and like the welts start to appear every night over the next five nights or oh so. Oh, my God. Uh... Yeah. So the parents are really starting to believe at this point that their son might be in the grip of something demonic. Sure. They go back to Schultz and basically he's like, sorry, guys, I can't really help you. Because the thing is, they're Lutherans. Lutherans okay. don't really have a history with exorcism. Oh. So Schultz is like, you need a Catholic priest. Okay. So according to legend, the family reaches out to this guy in town named Edward Hughes. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic priest. He supposedly conducts an exorcism on Roland at the Georgetown University Hospital. Okay. And supposedly during the session, Roland slips out of one of his arm restraints, takes a spring from the bed, and slashes Edward Hughes's arm. What the halting fuck? Halting the exorcism. Yeah, well, and this is the thing. So this doesn't go well. They don't know what to do. Roland ends up getting kicked out of school because his 
his desk is like involuntarily oh shaking during class. That's not his fault. Exactly. And then March 9th, 1949, the family travels to St. Louis, uh, where Roland's cousin contacts one of his professors uh, at the St. Louis University. Yeah. Uh, this professor was also a minister, uh, Raymond Bishop. Okay. Basically, he speaks to his friend William Bodern, uh, who is also an associate at the college church. Right. So William Bodern and Raymond Bishop on March 11th, 1949, end up making a house call to Roland's home. Okay. They see the bed shaking. They see objects flying. They see Roland speaking in like a guttural voice and showing an aversion to sacred objects. They start praying over the boy and he starts to report a pain in his chest. They open up his shirt and there are like slashes appearing on his chest. Oh my God. Yeah, like deep cut. So he's like writhing in pain and they continue to pray over him all night, but it doesn't stop until the family yells, until he stop. So it stops when they yell, until he stops. Yeah, like supposedly soon <gasps> Soon after, this is when everything stops and Roland falls asleep, like in the early dawn. Oh my god. So the fathers go back to their rectory, and the next day, Bodern decides that the boy is officially possessed and that he needs to exercise Roland. Right. And this is where it becomes a fucking action movie, Mama. Okay. Because <laughs> William Bodern has never done an exorcism before so he right. must learn he must read the rituale romanum Ooh. he must become acquainted with the rite of exorcism insert learn how to become an exorcist montage doom 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 so march 16th 1949 bodern goes to the archbishop in st louis to get permission to perform an exorcism archbishop says yes but he's like honey you better keep a day-to-day -day journal <laughs> i want notes baby that's the thing show me the receipts he <laughs> wanted a day-to-day -day account so he was like you can do this you just got to write it up baby okay yeah so they agree to do this and william bodern ends up naming raymond bishop his official assistant for this exorcism okay so raymond bishop uh the dude that was contacted through the college yeah becomes the guy who ends up uh keeping this journal day-to-day -day. Oh, okay 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 yeah, and it's pretty interesting because there are only supposedly five copies of this journal of the exorcism that exist to this day. Oh. Two of them went to archdiocese that were, like, local. Two of them went to the people who watched over Roland during the exorcism, and then one went into, like, an unnamed secret archive. Oh, okay. Now, supposedly... There are some copies that have been made and uh, shopped around private circles. So there are some that are in collections. And we'll Ooh. talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Yeah, so. Exclusive. Exclusive. So Bodern is now tasked with learning the rites of exorcism. QI of the tiger, bitch. Reads the Rituale Romanum, which is like the text that contains the Catholic rite of exorcism. Okay. Um, so basically, he's like putting together his pack. He's like, I need my crucifix. The book tells me I must use my commanding voice. So, you know, he's like doing speeches in front of the mirror every night being like, demons, ow, get out of here, baby, you gotta go. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then he's got to have his holy water, because according to the Rituale Re Romano, um, <laughs> you need to be able to put uh, holy water over the part of any like part of the afflicted's body that looks like it's like writhing or contorting. Right. Yeah, and then you do like the sign of the cross over it, blah, blah, blah. Is like it's a whole process. <laughs> yeah, so totally. he needs his kit, you know, he needs his rosary. He needs a few looks for the days that he's going to be away. Yeah, he needs his exorcism lyrics. He needs a back 
backup lipstick because a priest is never sure at night. Especially during an exorcism. Yes, It can get baby. messy. You might need to do a little touch-up. So here we go, baby. Exorcism time. Okay. March 16th, 1949. Everything starts to go down. Father Bodern is, like, praying over the boy. You know, like that whole deal. Mm-hmm. He's throwing holy water on him. He's dangling his necklaces around him. <laughs> this is the one that I got in Paris. Now, let me show you the one that I got from my vacation in Rome. Where he, is it? He's like, and this one is Dominique, <laughs> and it was only $39.99 on the home shopping network. Can you believe it? Just bore that demon out of him. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it's it's in hopes that you connect with the demon, and then maybe you can turn it over to your side, like the Abramelin, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, whatever, totally. Mama. Go the Alistair Crowley road. So anyway, shit's really going down, and like okay. for the first few days, it's like regular affairs. Day three, so March 18th, 1949, Bodern is, like, continuing to pray hour upon hour just before 1 a.m. Roland looks like he's about to throw up and then asks for everyone to open the window. Okay. Then Roland starts going, he's going, he's going, he's going, but won't say who. Right. Then the little boy just lays down and very calmly says, there he goes. Now, according to the journal, and this is a quote from an excerpt from the journal, and we'll have a few of those, because Mm -hmm. again, like I said, some of this shit's been leaked. Yeah. Um, Quote, in a moment, he was normal. The whole family knelt along the bed and said prayers of thanksgiving. End quote. You know what, though? In a moment, he was normal, but that sounds a little bit too normal to just be like, "Mm, there he goes. It's all done, guys. Well, this is the thing, Mama. Uh We got to learn these mistakes early on. So Bodern thinks that he's won. He goes home for the night. Wrong move. Now, the rituality Ray Romano has a warning. Yeah. Sometimes the devil will leave a possessed person in peace to make it appear that he's departed. Right. The exorcist must be on guard lest he fall into this trap. Yeah. 2 a.m., Bodern's been gone for an hour. Roland calls his mother into his room, screaming he's coming back. 3.15 a.m., an hour and 15 minutes later, mind you, Bodern is called back to Roland's bedside. Right. Mm-hmm, honey, nothing is over. So, business as usual. Let's fast forward a few days now. Day okay. 5, Sunday, March 20th. From the journal, quote, Roland went into his tantrum at 8.15 p.m. with more violence than any of the previous occasions, end quote. And I should also note that, like, on day one from the journal, they said that his blows were beyond the ordinary strength of any boy. Right. So the fact that on day five, that unordinary strength is now ramping up, up. Like, that's not good, mama. He's got, like, superhuman strength, basically. Exactly. Okay, yeah, so the violence is really starting to ramp up with Roland, and mm-hmm. basically at this point, the family can no longer take the bullshit. Right. Bodern takes a step that is outlined in the Rituality Romanum, which is uh, take the possessed to a worthy place away from a crowd. So he takes Roland to a Catholic hospital in St. Louis run by Catholic monks, okay. uh, the Alexian brothers. He's put into a special wing with locks on the doors and steel mesh on the windows. Shit. So he's been put in a fucking psych ward. Yeah. So this whole thing is really starting to take a dark fucking turn. Yeah. So day seven, uh, March 22nd, 1949, Father Bodern calls in reinforcements. Uh, Walter Halloran, who is the only surviving witness to this whole exorcism. Okay. Yeah, he's a young seminarian at the time. Basically, his job ends up being to restrain Roland during the exorcism. 
Not a great job. <laughs> a fucking bad job. He pulled the and short stick that day. Exactly. And sometimes he would have to talk and visit with Roland between prayers during the exorcism. Yeah. So Halloran gets there, and basically before the prayers get started, the holy water is blessed. Uh, they turn to put the water on the dresser. Again, the water goes flying through the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when he's first like, okay, shit's really going on here. And then Roland is just cursing everyone the house down boots. Um, basically, Yeah, and like at Roland's potty mouth, the journal actually says, and I quote, um, he had vile and dirty talk about genitals and masturbation. Uh, yeah, so basically he's being a teenage boy. <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah, fair enough. Come on. He's like, oh, you're going to throw me in a psych ward, honey? I'm going to bring up the dick talk. Yeah, I'm going to be a little brat. Just like son of Sam. Yeah. So basically as things go on, Roland just becomes more and more obscene. Uh, Halloran basically said that he never thought Roland was faking, though. Uh, he never thought that he was intentionally attracting or reveling in the attention that he was getting. Right, fair. Yeah, so day nine, March 24th, 1949, according to the journal, uh, he fought and kicked and spit so much that three men could barely hold him down. Shit. Yeah, well, and then here's the thing. So this day, Roland complains that he's being hurt by Halloran holding his arms down. Right. So then Halloran loosens up his grip. Roland fucking clocks him in the nose breaks his nose tricky tricky demons oh tricky demons right so roland seems completely oblivious that he's doing any of this right and the family is like fucked up and really upset priests are exhausted and roland is just getting worse at this point he gets out of bed stands up and pees over everyone in the room oh, just no. like fire hose style baby what? yeah just like hey rude that's why they needed the extra set of clothes in the uh, exorcism kit in case you get pissed on that is exactly why you need a few extra sets of clothes in your exorcism kit baby uh, According to the journal, quote, there were four or five such urinations during the evening. Whoa. Quote. Yeah, so it's a lot of one step forward, two steps back in this process. Yeah. And Roland seems to be getting more and more violent every time the name of God is invoked. And you know what? I hear ya. <laughs> You know what? Sometimes you just don't want that churchy bullshit. You're like, fuck off with that. Right? You know what, girl? There are some moments in life where I just wish I could have hopped up on that conference table and just peed on everyone. Yeah, totally. I don't. (laughs) I think we've all had that thought. Yeah. So, day 16, March 31st, 1949. (laughs) Roland begins to communicate on paper. Oh. Yeah, so from the journal, uh, quote, Roland called for a pencil. What he wrote was, quote, I am the devil himself. In 10 days, I will give a sign, unquote. Drama. (laughs) Yeah, and everyone is freaked the fuck out. But the rules say that the priests are not allowed to engage in conversation with the demon. So they can't ask what he means. So they just have to accept all this shit. Like you're dealing with a crazy person and you're like, oh, okay, okay, 10 days and we'll get a sign. Okay, well, thanks for telling us that. But because this is Bodern's first time, he's just like hotshot young priest over here. He decides to talk to Roland. Uh, noob. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, hey, baby, have you ever been baptized before? <laughs> Roland can't remember. Obviously, he's got some other things going on in the moment. But Roland basically is like, well, I mean, if I've already been baptized, I wouldn't mind if he did it again. So they go for it. Right. And the thing is, baptism is the first sacrament of Christianity. It is, in theory, a 
a form of exorcism, but usually it's a happy thing. This is not going to be a happy yeah, baptism. No. It's not yeah. going to be a cute little baby gown. Yeah, no little, one's getting invited to this. Little cup of water or nothing. I doubt that he got a gift for this <laughs> yeah, one. Probably not. No. So, day 17, April 1st, 1949. Roland is still getting worse and worse, but this is the day that Bodern baptizes Roland. Right. He asks him over and over, does thou renounce Satan? After enough times, Roland says that he does renounce. He does the sign of the cross on Roland's forehead uh, with holy water a bunch of times, and then Roland starts writhing in pain. Right. So then he yells out, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and then Roland just, like, falls back and is at peace. And then he pops back up, oh, okay. baby. Man. Yeah, and then he says that he was spitting and gyrating and cursing until 11.30 a.m. Oh, so, my God. Yeah, maybe he was on Molly. <laughs> he was just having a bad trip. He could just hear the music, baby. <laughs> so the thing is, though, now he's calm for a few days. Yeah. He starts helping out around the hospital what? during the day. Yeah, this is a good idea, guys. But at night, during the exorcisms, it's a totally different story, and he's still a fucking demon boy. Right. So this is the thing. It's like during the day, he's just like, oh, yeah, not a problem. Let me help you bake that bread. And then at night, he's like, you might have sucked cocks in hell, you know? Like, what <laughs> the fuck, Roland? But maybe he's, like, pulling some sneaky demon shit. Like, I'll help make the bread, but I'm going to replace the baking soda with salt. Oh, yeah, he could <laughs> you know be that bitch. I, mean? I hear you. I wouldn't put it past you, demon. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward a little bit to day 27 of the exorcism. Okay. This is April 18th, 1949. Bodern enters the room with his girl gang. Begins praying over Roland, bad blood style. Roland starts <laughs> writhing. Oh, you don't like that? I love it. I've never seen the video for Bad Blood, but I've seen clips where she's, like, walking away from an explosion with a girl gang. Yeah, fire everywhere, yeah. red hair. Yeah, Yeah, not? so this is basically that. Works. So, they find exit carved into Roland's chest. Can we stop communicating through carving shit in little boys here, demon? Right? We know you know how to use paper and a pencil. You already did that. Obviously. Can we stop trying to prove that we're bowdy-bowdy bitches here and just not use the little boys a fucking and sketch that would be cute yeah oh yeah and it gets even better because now the devil starts speaking through roland in a fucked up voice according to the journal the devil laughed and said he's only got to say one more word but he'll never say it so according to halloran the eyewitness uh they're all like super confused and then after a few hours they realize that the word that afflicts him is lord Oh. Yeah, he fucking hated the song Royals. <laughs> yeah, so the priests invoke Lord's name repeatedly. <laughs> Roland becomes agitated and delirious. So the journal now states that Roland sees a vision of St. Michael the Archangel. Uh, this is according to Roland. Okay. And then through Roland, St. Michael starts to say, Satan, I demand you and the other spirits to leave the body in the name of Dominus immediately. Now, now, now. Drama. Drama, bitch. And then Roland claims claims that he gets a vision of the devil and an angel fighting at the mouth of a fiery cave. This sounds like exactly what a 13-year-old would say. Yeah. And the angel wins and the devil retreats into his cave. Yeah, bitch. Archangel, 
win fatality. <laughs> so Roland receives communion from Father Bodern. Uh, soon after, a powerful blast is heard throughout the hospital, but supposedly no one else feels shockwaves or the explosion. But the church across the road heard it. And then the lights go out, and then they come back on because this is a stage play. Yeah, full and drama. And Roland sits up and says, he's gone. Again? Yep. But for real? Well, Bodern does take this as a sign that the devil's gone. Okay. So after 28 days of exorcism, April 19th, 1949, Roland finally gets to go home. Okay. And he's never afflicted again. Shit. Father Bodern returns to his pastoral duties and never discusses the exorcism again. Shit. Newspaper articles get written. Basically, the priests start to get unwanted press from the whole thing. Phone calls from reporters are coming in. Yeah. People wanting their husbands and their dogs exercised. Like, oh, yeah, like it was fucking insane. People were just coming out of the woodwork. Because, again, the priests didn't want the attention, but the media already knew that this stuff was going on. So it was like flies to shit. That's very much like uh, my story with the UFO encounter, you know? Unwanted media attention. Exactly. And then basically, years later, Bodern is contacted by a young author named William Peter Blatty. Oh, shit. Yeah. And Bodern refuses to talk to him. In fact, in a letter to him, he says, and I quote, The only thing I can tell you is that the case that I was involved in was the real thing. I have no doubt about it then, and I have no doubt about it now. But the deal is that Blatty supposedly was able to obtain one of the uh, private collection copies of the Exorcist journals. Oh, the Exorcist diaries. Yeah, and then went on to write the 1971 novel, The Exorcist. Damn. Which then was turned into a movie that premiered on December 26th of 1973. People throw up and they faint at the premiere of the movie. Like, you know, The Exorcism has all this press that surrounded it. Oh, yeah, totally. And there was a huge rushback to religion uh, at the time. Uh, Catholic churches actually reported a huge increase in confessionals. You're welcome. Yeah, you did nothing to deserve it. Uh, One Catholic church in Washington actually received 40 different requests for exorcism shortly after the premiere of the movie. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there was, I remember hearing all about the sensations that are happening around that movie. Like, it was pandemonium. Like, people had never experienced anything like that before in their entire fucking lives. People were shook. And it was one of the kickoffs to the Satan panic which lasted you know into the like the late 80s early 90s yeah. i mean like it was a big moment yeah and this is the story that inspired it um it's pretty fucked up and i mean the thing is though a lot of people uh question whether it was real or not right uh, walter halloran who was there said that he believed that it was genuine and that there was no deception on roland's part but others believe that it might have had something to do with the family's belief in spiritualism like fueling the whole thing right uh, along with the priest's belief in exorcism like shaping the whole situation i mean yeah but that sounds pretty extreme you know what i mean well that's the thing and it's like what about the shaking beds and the flying objects yeah but then the other thing that we have to think about is that eyewitness testimony is like across the board the flimsiest testimony sure and all of that stuff is eyewitness testimony that was given um but after the entire incident roland actually converted to the catholic church um he became a scientist and lived a completely normal life never afflicted with any of this again uh he lived off in like the eastern usa okay um and supposedly has no recollection of the events so he's just never really talked about it yeah it's just it is what it is uh bodern died in st louis at the age of 86 uh never spoke publicly about the exorcism and 
like even up until his death in 1983. Uh, in 1999, 385 years after it was written, the Vatican issued revisions of the Rituality Romanum, uh, basically to ensure that afflicted people weren't suffering from mental and physical illness. Right. Yeah, because that's the thing. With a lot of these exorcism cases, you know, if you look at it from a medical standpoint, you know, a lot of these things can be linked to other afflictions, like temporal lobe seizures, uh, which is also kind of what they were pointing at in the Annalise Michelle case as well. Right. Because, I mean, ultimately she died from being starved because her family just stopped feeding her because they thought oh. they could starve the demon out of her. That's fucked up. Yeah, like it was child abuse. Now, Roland survived this, but there are a lot of people out there that have tried to poke holes in this entire thing. Right. So the reason that I was saying supposedly so much when it came to the first exorcisms by William Hughes is that there actually is no record of him making a home visit there's no record of Roland being uh, admitted to a hospital. There's no record of an injury from, like, a spring slitting someone's arm. There's nothing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that might be all pageantry. Yeah, well, and actually, early reporting of the case actually had it happening in a place called uh, Mount Rainier, or oh, Mount okay. Rainier, uh, which isn't Cottage City. Like, the details of the location were fucked up. There was an address that was given that was supposedly where Roland lived that actually kind of became, like, an iconic local spot that people would come and visit. Okay. Uh, that he never lived at. Like, there's, it's not even in the same town as where uh, Roland Doe lived. Right. And there's this guy named Mark... Ospiznik. Uh I'm going to say right now, he is somebody who 100% has written his own Wikipedia page. Okay. Yeah, and he did this investigative article for something called Strange Magazine. You can read about it on his Wikipedia page. Oh, great. Because I'm sure one of his fans wrote it there for him. <laughs> totally. It wasn't him at all covered in Cheeto dust. Um, so Mark actually went to where Roland Doe uh, grew up and interviewed a whole bunch of people that would have gone to school with him. According to people that knew Roland at the time, he was a shitty little brat okay. and was likely just doing this for attention or to get out of school. Huh. Yeah. And there were reports that Halloran had also told people, like Halloran, the guy that was like, I really believe this shit happened. Yeah. And like, I've seen video of him saying, like, I really believe this happened. But supposedly there are videos of him saying that he never really heard the boy's voice change. Uh, and that the Latin that Roland was speaking to the priests during the exorcism was probably just parroting back what they were saying. Oh, exactly. Because supposedly there was a bit of like a snarky tone to it and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess whether or not this happened, whether or not the exorcism was real, this is a pretty iconic story. I mean, it's what influenced the exorcist. Yeah. And that's like. A big cultural milestone. Yeah, and it's still like a freaky ass story to hear. Like, I don't know. I, I have a soft spot for exorcism stories. And uh, it kind of makes me want to go rewatch The Exorcist. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, bitch, it's on. Date night. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we're at the point in the show where we ask each other what we learned. Yeah. So what did you learn this week, Tyler? Okay, so this week I learned don't futz with Ouija boards unless you want to futz with the devil. Yes, bitch, you are right. Don't fuck around with the Ouija board. No, ma'am. Mm-mm. How about you, Johnny? What did you learn? Well, I guess I've learned that just because somebody's a geologist, it doesn't mean that they haven't seen some shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. You should never write somebody off for being boring based on what they do because you never know. 
Exactly. Geologists might be the hardest motherfuckers you ever come across. Yeah, mama. I'm going to think twice about rolling up on a geologist ever again. Right? Don't fuck with them. Mm-mm. So, Johnny, it looks like we did it. We successfully recorded an episode that did not involve any death whatsoever, just a shit ton of suffering and pain. Yes! <laughs> families destroyed by the devil, shitty little kids that are out for attention, aliens fucking up your hands. We had a lot of new territory treaded this week. Totally, we kept it real light. <laughs> yeah, real light. You're all fucking welcome. <laughs> Well, I guess on that note, I want to throw out there again, we are still wanting more stories sent to our email. So if you've experienced anything spooky, ooky, freaky, or deaky, you can send it to us at thatspookypod at gmail.com. Yeah, and you can like rate us five stars and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. You can also find us on Instagram at That's Spooky Pod. That's T-H-A-T-S-S-P-O-O-K-Y-P-O-D. Yeah, and even though we said we wouldn't do it, girls, we did it. We got Twitter. No! No! It's not that bad. No. Um, yeah, so we've got Twitter now. You can check us out there at That's Spooky Pod as well. Yeah, and you can also check these hoes out on the internet at thatspooky.com. <laughs> and I guess that's it. Yeah, and remember, if you're going to be a bitch... Be a spooky bitch. <laughs> Bye. Uh, bye-bye. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.